Amen. Well, let's turn once again back to the text we read for our scripture reading tonight, 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1. I always look forward to this Wednesday before Thanksgiving service. It's one of those moments of the year we look forward to as we intentionally think about things that we ought to be thankful for and we consider how many things we are grateful for. And I knew late last week that this was the text that was so impressed upon my heart about the theme this year of what we ought to be thankful for. And I want us to consider for our subject tonight, which will come from 2 Thessalonians 1 uh, from verse 3. Uh, Paul says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. I want to consider the subject tonight, growing in grace, giving thanks to God. Growth in grace is expected. Growing in grace is expected of any who have tasted of the grace of God. It would be unthinkable to consider something that has life in it not growing. It would be unthinkable to consider that something that has life is not changing or progressively becoming more in what its intended purpose is for. This particular passage that we read tonight uh, makes us and reminds us again that there is no other uh, organization, if you will, on this earth that this letter that Paul writes and these words that he says, especially in verse 3, that is more applicable than the church of the living God. Uh, we are brothers and sisters, and we are part of a church of the living God. Not a dead God, not a God who was once alive and is no longer alive, but a living God, the church of the living God. This letter that Paul writes, as many of his epistles, uh, we can read this letter as if he wrote it directly to us, that he addressed it to us, that he said, I'm going to write to that church over there, and I want them to know that these are the things that they ought to consider and things they ought to be thankful for. Now, we understand when Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, some of the context of this will teach us uh, that this particular church was known for its growth. It was known for its growing in faith and in patience and in love. Not necessarily growth in numbers, but certainly it was growing. Just like churches today, not every church in Paul's day was prospering. Not every church was spiritual and not every church was happy. And just as it is today, not every church can say they're growing. We don't mean growing in numbers. We mean growing in grace, growing in faith, growing in love. But when Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica, he found a church that was growing in those things. They were, in fact, growing in grace. And as a result of their growing in grace, they were finding that their faith was being strengthened and that their love for one another was also increasing. He found a church that was indeed thankful. And he finds a church that was 
deserving of commendation. Now again, we have to keep in mind that any commendation that a church receives is not because of the individuals, but it's because of God's mercy. If there's any fruit that's found in a church, if there's anything good that's found in a church, it's the result of God's working. It's not because the people are good, it's because God is merciful and God is good. We've been talking about that on Sunday mornings as we looked at Psalm 136, a typical Thanksgiving psalm, if you will. But we have to remember that any good that we see in God's churches, the church of the living God, is a result of God's working in us. Now we know that when we read the Scriptures, and we read it personally, we read it for ourselves, we read it corporately, there are times when the Word of God will reveal in a church its defects and its deficiencies, things that maybe are not as they should be, Growing in grace is not as it should be. Love is not as it should be. But we understand that Paul gives thanks for a church in which this is occurring. Notice he specifically says we are bound to thank God in verse 3. We are bound to thank God. To be bound by something means it is our responsibility. It is something that we are required to do. One of the things that I think we often fail to remember to be thankful for is be thankful for other brothers and sisters in Christ. Be thankful for the brethren. Be thankful that we're not standing alone. Be thankful that we are experiencing this world together. We are living life together. Uh, This is not just a body that gathers together for services. This is not just a body that just has church functions. This is actually a church that is supposed to be growing. Paul says this church in Thessalonica was in fact growing in grace. Paul clearly declares to us that this growth was by the grace of God. Now, we don't see the word in verse 3, grace, but we see that this is the powerful result of what grace does. Notice he speaks about faith growing exceedingly. And the charity of every one of you all towards each other aboundeth. He says your faith is growing exceedingly. And your love or charity towards each other is a, it's abounding. It is something that it's hard to keep it contained. Now Paul, as he often does in many of his epistles in verse 2, his typical greeting is grace unto you. He's speaking of a grace that is known. It's his usual greeting. When he says the phrase grace unto you, he doesn't mean I'm greeting you with grace that is stagnant, grace that is stopping. He said I'm greeting you with grace that is growing. That's what his intent is. Grace unto you. Not only the grace that you have now, but the grace that you are in fact growing in. What does it mean to grow in grace? Well, it means that we certainly grow in our experiences of God, but we also grow in our knowledge of God. As we grow together in the knowledge of God, our grace grows, our faith grows, and we start to see love for one another. Now remember, as we've already mentioned here in our introduction, if there is still evil, there is still sin within us, so we have to keep in mind that whatever good there is, is clearly from God and is the result of God's grace. 
In these first three verses, I want us to consider this heading, and all of these tonight will, for simplicity, and to kind of help us really see, uh, all of these will begin with the phrase, growing in grace. In verses 1 through 3, we see Paul indicating that growing in grace is caused by our sanctification resulting in brotherly love. The process of being conformed into the image of Christ, sanctification. Notice that Paul greets this church, and he greets them as the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's addressing a church. It's important for us to know that a true church is not just a group of people that are gathered together who have similar interests or for some religious activity or for social functions. A true church is the very work of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. It's a group of people who are bound together. But they're bound together with the common purpose of this common faith. It's not just for the intent of just having a gathering of people. Think about how we arrived here. Think about we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. He not only chose us, but He adopted us into the family of God. He called us out from a world of sin into His glorious truth. We've been regenerated. We've received Christ. Christ, the hope that is within us. Think about this, that even our church tonight, just like the church at Thessalonica, is part of the body of Christ. And it's part of the body of Christ that is growing whether we see it or not. It's tempting to see some of the things that I've seen this week about what's happening to the church around the world and to think something's happening, that the world is getting a foothold and it's taking over the churches and the churches are struggling and the churches are dying. And I'm reminded over and over and over again that the church is the church of the living God. It cannot be destroyed and it cannot be wiped out. We're part of that. We're part of the body of Christ. Paul makes mention of the fact that he greets them with this grace and peace, and he indicates where it came from. From our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, we are bound, and I am bound, Paul says, to give thanks to God for you, my brethren, and he says, it is fitting or it is meet that we should give thanks to God, not only for the presence of God, but for the presence of faith and love and growth and sanctification that is happening amongst us. Paul was thankful that the brothers and sisters in Christ were growing, that they were progressively being more and more sanctified and being more and more conformed into the image of Christ. That's what's at the context of what Paul is stating here. Wherever the goodness of God is revealed, we ought to praise Him for it. 
When we look at one another and we consider one another, and if we see grace and we see growing in grace and love and faith in each other, we ought to thank God for that. We ought to thank God that we're not staying stagnant. That if we were to go back one year from tonight and review again our Thanksgiving service last year, that we have actually seen evidence of this growth and growing in grace. That's what sanctification is. And we ought to praise God and thank God for that. Thank God that the brothers and sisters in Christ are growing and that they, we are becoming more loving. That's what Paul was saying. That's what's happening to the church at Thessalonica. He said we ought to thank God. He doesn't say it's an option. He says we are bound to thank God for this. Why are we bound to thank God? Because we are bound to thank Him for everything He's done. From our very conversion to the very fact that we can have the assurance of knowing that we will in fact be glorified one day. The very welfare of one another ought to be so very dear to us that whatever happens to another brother and sister in Christ ought to be as if it happened to us. I ought to be as thrilled about your growth in grace as if it happened to me. Sometimes we can get so, so theologically bent. And again, theology is important. Doctrine is important. I'm not saying it isn't. But we can almost turn it into a competition about who knows more. That really was never the intent. The intent was, I ought to rejoice if someone's growing in grace. And just because another brother or sister may be a little bit further down the road, I'm still going to rejoice. Or if someone's further down the road than I am, I'm going to rejoice that they're continuing to grow. Not being envious that they may know God a little bit more than I do. We ought to be thankful for the very simple, simple realities of what growing in grace actually means. If we do grow in grace, we are going to grow in faith. Our faith is going to be strengthened. We're also going to grow in love. Grace, that something that is called grace that does not also grow in faith and love is not grace at all. So if we claim to be saved by grace, if we claim that we are recipients of this grace, there is no mistake about it. You are going to grow in faith and you are going to grow in love. And that's what Paul's commending the church at Thessalonica for. Christ is the very foundation and Christ is the very bond that holds us together. He's the center. He is the preeminent one. All who love him, all who love to be taught by his word, Auto in response, love one another and love the brethren who also share in that same love for Christ. I know it's hard for us to believe this, but the whole world does not love Christ the way that you love Christ. He has set His love upon you. He set His love upon you. You didn't set your love upon Him. That's something we certainly should be thankful for. I should be thankful that God set His love upon you. And the next time we see a soul converted, 
We ought to praise God and thank Him for that. There's another brother or sister in Christ now. And rejoice in their growth. Paul indicates that this is in fact a result of this sanctifying process. It continues. Our second heading found in verses 4 through 9. Growing in grace is evidenced by increasing patience and submission in persecution and trials. Growing in grace is evidenced by increasing patience and submission in persecution and trials. Paul, in verse 4, says, So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. This church was prosperous. This church was growing in grace. But this church was also experiencing persecution. And Paul acknowledges that. And he says, I commend and we give glory to God that you're demonstrating patience and faith even in the midst of persecution. We mentioned this, Paul says, with great rejoicing in the presence of other churches. Now, Paul did not boast of Thessalonica's faith to shame other believers or to exalt his own ministry. Remember, Paul had firsthand in planting this, these churches in Thessalonica. He says, I'm not doing this to exalt the ministry of myself, and I'm not doing it to shame other churches into thinking, why aren't you as good? But he's encouraging other churches to imitate what's happening in this church in Thessalonica. What's happening in that church is they're growing in grace. They're growing in faith. They're growing in love. You realize the strength of your faith and the strength of your love when persecutions come is going to demonstrate whether or not a true church is actually standing there. Now Paul begins to deal with some very difficult subjects. Paul rejoices in their patience. He rejoices in their faith. That their faith is standing strong under great persecution and trial. You realize that patience is the fruit of grace. It's also the evidence of faith. There is nothing that will sustain us in a trial or persecution but faith. If we fall under great persecution, we fall under affliction. We've, we've talked a lot about different subjects over the last three or four weeks here on Wednesday night. Afflictions and contentment and all of those things, you realize that all of those things we will not be sustained unless our faith is strong. The stronger our faith is, the more we'll be able to endure the trials and afflictions that will come. If our faith fails under trial, it reveals unbelief and it reveals, at least to some extent, a weakness in our faith. Now again, remember, faith that we claim now when nothing is difficult, we still call it faith. But Paul acknowledges this faith that is occurring under persecution. He continues with this thought in verses 5 and 6 and really shows us a twofold lesson. Now, I'm not going to expound this as deeply and as far as we could take this tonight. And I think, I think you'll understand where, where I'm going with this. But verse 5, with, result, with, with uh, reference to verse 4, 
these things that are happening in verses 3 and 4, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. This manifest token has the idea of a mirror. And this mirror is showing us a picture of what God's righteous judgment looks like. He's encouraging, Paul is encouraging the believers who are in the faith, who have a love for Christ, who have a love for the gospel, and he's reminding them of the persecutions that they're enduring. You realize that even persecutions, trials and afflictions, are meant to try and to prove our faith. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That even in the midst of this, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your affliction, God will be exalted. God will be glorified. I can't explain this to you, but I watched a video of a man being taken from a pulpit in a church and beaten with a stick repeatedly over and over and over again. The man walked out in the middle and just stood in the circle and they continued to pound him. And I can't explain this to you, but even in the midst of that persecution and that suffering, God was being glorified and God was being exalted. But your heart hurts for that man. But he was patiently enduring affliction for the cause of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt in my mind that he would have been a recipient of who Paul was talking about. Patiently enduring affliction in the midst of persecution and trial. This pastor did nothing more but was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in a very small, beyond poverty-stricken town. Dirt floors and a lean-to for a building. And yet he's being persecuted. And yet, even in persecution, Paul says, God is being exalted, God is being glorified. Now Paul reminds them again that you're counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. This is a direct reference to the persecuted church. Thessalonica was a persecuted church. Seeing it as a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. You realize that that's what a lot of our persecuted brethren around the world are relying on is that verse right there. It's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them. That's the wicked that are troubling you. See, we're looking beyond what's happening in our world right now and we're remembering and understanding that God will not be mocked and His people, although they may suffer greatly here, one day He is going to set all those things in proper order. Real faith and real patience is revealed in persecution and trial. The wicked all around us seem to prosper. The wicked today seem to walk in pride. They walk in unbelief. They mock God. They have no fear of God before their eyes. You realize all of that is a mockery of the grace of God. 
Philippians 1.28 and Psalm 73. We won't turn there for, for our time tonight, but both of those, Paul in Philippians and the psalmist in Psalm 73, both tell us that God will set everything right and justice will take place in his own time. He continues, verse 7, to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. To you, we may say, who are distressed, afflicted, along with the rest of us. What Paul was saying is, we have experienced that same thing. Remember we talked about being thankful for brothers and sisters growing in Christ. I wonder what it would be if we were experiencing persecution, would we stay together? Paul's reminding us that you're not alone. You're not by yourself. The body of Christ and the brethren who are growing in this grace, they're growing in faith, they're growing in love. These are ways and means in which God has given us to edify and encourage one another to keep going. To not stop when persecution comes. You see, the reality of God's word is not just being thankful for a church that's good in its social functions and its gatherings. God's writing about the church of the living God that is standing even in the midst of persecution. And be thankful for the brethren who are standing with you. We're not alone. But Paul says this affliction that comes, we're reminded to think about He who suffered for us. Jesus Christ, He who knew no sin, but yet He walked the road of suffering. He walked the road of affliction. Paul reminds them that one day the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven, and when He's revealed, it will be with His mighty angels. Verse 8, In flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, again, we're not going to get in tonight and even speculate of the, what the fire he's talking about here, but oftentimes throughout Scripture, flame and fire is often used in Scripture when the anger of God is being spoken of. But there's two really important truths to know here. Number one, Paul is reminding them that God will vindicate his people. We're told in Scripture in Romans 12, 19 and Hebrews 10, 30 that vengeance is not ours, nor are we even desire to desire vengeance, but rather we are to desire the good of all people. Vengeance belongs to God, and God will set all things in order, and God will set all things right in His time and in His way. But what's even more interesting here is that why does God do this? God does this and this vengeance not primarily for our sake, although it is for our sake, but He inflicts this vengeance with a view of His own glory. He will do this for His own glory. But we are recipients of that. This wrath, the Bible says, will fall upon those who know not God and believe not the gospel of Christ. You realize tonight, had it not been Him coming to you, you would be one who knew not God and did not believe the gospel of Christ. There's another 
blessing and something to be thankful for. Why are you and I not numbered among those who know not God? Why are we not numbered among those who do not obey the gospel of Christ? It is all because of His grace. And that's it. And when we see that grace in one another, we ought to be thankful for that. We ought to be thankful when somebody who was once a despiser and a persecutor and a hater of God is gloriously converted. Not reminding them of what they used to be, but reminding them and rejoicing with them and thanking God that they are now numbered in the family of God. This hatred and mockery of God in contempt for the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ, will bring eternal wrath. Again, Paul is dealing with very difficult subjects. But the context of this chapter doesn't make any sense if we just skip this. I could have just emphasized the first four verses and said that's a good Thanksgiving message. Let's just end there. But Paul had something so much more in mind because he's reminding this church of the persecution and the tribulations that they're not alone. Remember your faith. Remember your love for one another that when persecutions come, be thankful that there are others that are standing with you. Verse 9, Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power? I am not sure in Scripture if there is a more sad statement than verse 9. Such were some of us. Right? Before we knew God, that was our destiny right there but yet Paul reminds them that this shows the nature of those the punishment of those who do not obey the gospel those who mock God those who know not God I want you to look at the words again everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power your mind, my mind, cannot even grasp everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Just like our mind can't grip eternity, your mind cannot grip an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Because every day the presence of the Lord is with you. He indwells you by the Spirit. Every day that you live, you are indwelt by God. You are continually in His presence. When we gather as a church, we are gathered not asking the presence of God to come down and come join us because He's already here. He's not in the four walls of the building. He's in the believer. So when we give thanks for one another, we're giving thanks for the presence of the Spirit that's guiding and directing and convicting and encouraging and speaking of Christ over and over again. The very everlasting destruction is the opposite of the glory of Christ, and it's the opposite end that you and I are going to experience. We're promised through Jesus Christ and His righteousness and His shed blood, we are promised an eternity with Him. 
There is no more striking uh, contrast in all of Scripture than everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord or to be present with the Lord. There's only two places. You're either going to eternally be in the presence of the Lord or you're going to be removed from the presence of the Lord. We ought to be thankful. And then verses 10 through 12, Paul says growing in grace brings glory to God and preaches the gospel of God's grace to others. Growing in grace brings glory to God and preaches the gospel of God's grace to others. Look what Paul says now. Then the, the tone changes. He moves away from judgment and vengeance and fire, everlasting destruction. And then he says, when he shall come. When Christ shall come. Brethren, he's coming. He's coming again. To do what? To be glorified in His saints. Now this is a, a very interesting phrase. And when you, when you look at it from what the, uh, the intent of what is happening here, this glorified in His saints is Christ is coming to be worshipped by His saints, to be worshipped by His people. He will be glorified. He will be worshipped. And look what it says and on uh, continuing there. He says, in the saints, and to be admired in all them that believe. What a beautiful statement here. Not only will He have this glory for Himself, but this glory will be admired and seen, witnessed, evidenced in all believers. This glory, we are going to glorify Him in our bodies. Right now, by many in the world, the mockers of God, the haters of God, those that remove that pastor I just told you about from his pulpit, that man, although he is standing for his faith by the world, he's looked at as nothing. He's looked at as vile. He's looked at as worthless. But in the eyes of Almighty God, as one of His children, He's precious. Folks, the world is not going to view you the way that Jesus Christ views His children. But it's not the world's view that matters. It's what is, how does Christ view us? And the great question that our Lord asks, what think ye of Christ? What do you think of Him? Is He precious to you? Because if He's precious to you, you are in the faith. When Christ will come and pour forth His glory, will pour out vengeance, which is His right, you, Paul says, will be among the numbered of His saints. 
I don't know about you, but that's a list I want to be on and I'm thankful to be on. I'm thankful to be on the list of Jesus Christ, Almighty God, and the family of God. And yet, I can't take any credit for it. I still can't give God a reason after all these years. I can't give God a reason as to why I should be numbered among the elect. Why should I be numbered among your people? I still can't find a reason. And no matter how deep you look, no matter how far you go back into your past, your history, trying to find a reason why God saved you, why God chose you and counted you as one of his, you can't find it. Paul says in the midst of all this, rejoice that you are numbered as one of his. Verse 11 and 12. And Paul makes mention in the end of verse 10, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Paul's talking about when the gospel came, they believed it was true. But then look what he says in these two concluding verses. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll allow me the liberty just to kind of put this in my own words just for a minute. Paul says, with all this in view, Everything that I've said to you, I want you to know this. We constantly pray for you. We are always praying for you. And not just generally praying, but Paul says, here's what we're praying for. We're praying that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. In other words, that God will do and accomplish His purpose in calling you. In giving you the power to call upon His name. The sustaining power to continue to grow. To be steadfast and sure. Paul says we pray that God will fulfill all of His good pleasure and goodness towards you in Christ. And I love this. And that He will complete the work. Paul makes mention in the book of Philippians about the good work that began in you and how he will complete and will finish the work. And by the way, that's a good work. Why? That in all things, he says the very reason why the prayer is as it is, it's that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. Paul doesn't say this is so that you'll receive acclaim or applause, but that so the name of Christ will be glorified in you. That your growing in grace would be seen. Your strengthening in faith. Growing in grace and faith appeared in the love that the brethren in Thessalonica had towards one another. They loved one another for the truth's sake. You realize when Paul's talking about the love that is within the brethren, it's not the love that we, the world wants to define it with. The reason we love the brethren is not because we're lovable. We love one another for the truth's sake. 
If you can get a group of people, even this size, in one room to agree what the truth is, you are part of something pretty remarkable. You can't find that anywhere in the world right now. You can't find two people to agree on what is an obvious truth. The fact that you can get a group of people together in a church and agree that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He's the only way of salvation, is a miracle of God's working. Go out that and go try that at where you work and see if you get agreement. See if you can say to most co-workers, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. See if there's love for each other for the truth's sake. That's why we love one another is for the truth's sake. That we share a common bond in Christ. If there is true Christian love among us, then brotherly love and the giving of thanks is going to not just be there and be stagnant, but as Paul said back in verse 3, it's going to abound. It's going to be progressing. It's going to be growing. 365 days from tonight, there should be more love amongst one another than there is on this night. And two years from now, there ought to be even more brotherly love towards each other. So that we become so dear to one another, that we become so dear to one another that it's unthinkable that there would even be a breach in that love. And that we would not allow something to break it and say, no, this is the truth we stand upon and this is what unites us in Christ. Brethren, that's something very, very special. That's a direct work of God. If we're not growing in grace, our faith, at the very least, becomes doubtful. If our church doesn't grow in grace, if you're not growing in grace, your faith becomes a question mark. Growing in grace actually proves that there is divine life within us. If our grace, we're growing in that grace, it's proof that the Spirit dwells within us. Why? We can know that the Spirit is not going to indwell us and leave us the same. We are going to be sanctified. We're growing into the image, being conformed in the image of Christ. My prayer for us tonight is that we would, like Paul says at the end of that verse, in verse 3, he says that your faith groweth exceedingly. That's my prayer, is that our faith would grow exceedingly for one another. If you will just give me and be patient with me, I want to share something with you. We'll close with this, but I think uh, this is um, something I came across this week that I thought uh, would, would work as sort of a benediction tonight to think about how we view one another. And uh, Spurgeon wrote this um, I believe it was, it was written near the end of his first pastorate. And some of you may have seen this, but it's, it's entitled Growing in Sweetness Towards Our Fellow Christians. He said, as we grow in grace, we are sure to grow in charity, sympathy, and love. We shall have greater and more intense affection for the person of him whom having not seen, we love. 
We shall have greater delight in the precious things of His gospel. The doctrine which perhaps we did not understand at first will become morrow and fatness to us as we advance in grace. We shall feel that there is honey dripping from the honeycomb in the deeper truths of our religion. We shall, as we ripen in grace, have greater sweetness towards our fellow Christians. Bitter-spirited Christians may know a great deal, but they are immature. Those who are quick to censure or censor may be very acute in judgment, but they are as yet very immature in heart. He who grows in grace remembers that he is but dust, and he therefore does not expect his fellow Christians to be anything more. He overlooks 10,000 of their faults because he knows his God overlooks 20,000 in his own case. He does not expect perfection in the creature, and therefore he's not disappointed when he doesn't find it. As he has sometimes to say of himself, this is my infirmity. So he often says of his brethren, this is their infirmity, and he does not judge them as he once did. I know we who are young beginners in grace think ourselves qualified to reform the whole Christian church. We drag her before us and condemn her straightway. But when our virtues become more mature, I trust we shall not be more tolerant of evil, but we shall be more tolerant of infirmity, more hopeful for the people of God, and certainly less arrogant in our criticisms. Sweetness towards sinners is another sign of ripeness. When the Christian loves the souls of men, when he feels that there is nothing in the world which he cares for so much as endeavoring to bring others to a knowledge of the saving truth, when he can lay himself out for sinners, bear with their ill manners, bear with anything, so that he might but lead them to the Savior, then is the man mature in grace. God grant this sweetness to us all. A holy calm, cheerfulness, patience, a walk with God, fellowship with Jesus, an anointing from the Holy One. I put all these together and I call them sweetness, heavenly lusciousness, full flavoredness of Christ. May this be in you and abound. That helped me a tremendous amount. And I hope it'll be a good benediction for us as we bring our time to a close tonight. Well, let's finish with singing the hymn 370.